Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The only daily Premier League podcast. This is Football Social Daily. Hello and welcome to Football Social Daily. Still the only daily Premier League ball ball on your footballing Christmas tree. I'm Jim Salverson and behind door number seven on your advent calendar this weekend, we've got Niall McCorn. How are you doing, Niall? <laughs> Hi, Jim. I wonder where you were going with that then. Uh, <laughs> it's a recipe for disaster this early on a Monday, but yeah, I'm good. I was going to say you pair were in my stocking, but I thought that would sound equally dodgy. <laughs> Too far. Next, you'll be a bearded man sliding down my chimney. <laughs> well, we've got Marley Anderson as well on the podcast. How are you doing, Marley? I'm loving this topical topical start to the, uh, to the podcast today. I'm, I'm waiting for when you inevitably... Uh, do this Jacob Marley Marley Scrooge thing oh. at Christmas. That's that's definitely on <laughs> the on the, the hit list for the next Let's couple make, of weeks, isn't it? Just write that down, make a note of that. <laughs> well it's only the seventh. I think we've peaked a bit soon for the Christmas puns. I think we should save it till a little bit later in the month. Mm, maybe. It is starting to feel a little bit festive, a little bit seasonal, and there is a big show today on the podcast. There's loads going on, including the very first transfer rumours of the season. They're coming up in a little bit. The transfer window opens in 23 days. There could be a big name coming to the Premier League, according to the latest rumours, and a familiar face on his way to Manchester United. Before we get onto that, though, we need to talk about Liverpool's virtuoso display against Wolves last night and tonight's final Premier League game of the week. South Coast action, Southampton travelling to Brighton there. Plus, if there was ever going to be a crisis club in the Premier League right now, it's going to be Arsenal. Their worst start to a league season since 1981. They're currently 15th in the league. They've scored 10 goals this season. I'm going to be talking to Josh from a Bergkamp Wonderland to get his take on proceedings in Floodlight Focus a little bit later. But first off, Liverpool, where last night you'll never walk alone, will never have sounded quite so apt as 2,000 fans return to the stadium for the first time since March. 271 days since Liverpool hosted Atletico Madrid at the very start of the pandemic and an event that was thought to have really bumped up those coronavirus infection rates in <laughs> Liverpool at the time. But the fans were back, the cop was singing and Liverpool responded. They 
beat Wolves 4-0. Tore them a new one. <laughs> and it was a really great win for Liverpool. But Wolves, let's start there because they just don't seem quite right this season, Niall. What is wrong with Wolves? Which was kind of summed up by the opener, an uncharacteristic mistake from Connor Cody. Yeah, I'll come on to the Connor Cody thing in a sec. But as for Wolves, it's interesting because the Wolves fans that we've spoken to on Floodlight Focus over the opening few months of the season have all said the same thing. They've all said that they're seventh and they're knocking around the top 10 and they're in with a good shout of finishing in a good position again this season if they carry on uh, getting the results that they're getting. But in terms of the actual performances, they've not been that good. And I think that's something you've noticed, Jim, because even though you look at the table and you see it on face value and you've seen Wolves in 7th, 8th, 6th, they've been around that spot for Mm. most of the season. You've continuously said, Jim, that you think that there's something not quite right with Wolves and maybe that was kind of embodied in that Connor Cody mistake last night. I think it's interesting that that is kind of used as as a marker for Wolves' poor performance yesterday because I think it's a little bit harsh on Cody. I think that, you know, he's been so consistent and let's not forget, only a couple of weeks ago, um, due to receiving a notification on his phone from, from the NHS Test and Trace app here in the UK. Uh, he had to miss the game uh, a couple of weeks ago, didn't he? The Wolves game, which was his first absence from the starting eleven for Wolves or the matchday squad for something like three years. So he's been an, an ever-present and, you know, you'd think that one game off wouldn't be enough to throw him out of kilter, but the fact that the game he came back into was at Anfield um, against the club that he used to play for um, and against the side who he's so desperate to do well and against the side who have been linked with signing him from Wolves in the past with fans back in the stadium to to add an extra spice to that. I think it was perhaps just a little bit of indecision um, and maybe a little bit of pressure and a little bit of nerves from Connor Cody, which we haven't really seen too much of. And, you know, the guy's been so consistent, so I don't think it's fair and I don't think anyone is lambasting him for making a mistake but when you do make a mistake on the edge of your own 18 yard box and you've got players like Mo Salah in the side I mean you don't need to invite Mo Salah twice to score against you especially if it's capitalising upon a mistake so yeah it was uncharacteristic as you said before Um, but in terms of what's actually wrong with Wolves I don't know maybe it's just uh, maybe it just needs a bit of a shake up not in terms of manager but maybe change the system a little bit which has suited them so well sometimes you just need to adapt and overcome and I think we've seen that from some of the best managers um, in the Premier League over the years where you know Jurgen Klopp has stuck to that rigid 4-3-3 and it seems to work really well for them um, but if you look at someone like Ole Gunnar Solskjaer at Manchester United who I'm not labelling a success by any means but I'm just saying you know, he's played 4-2-3-1 against teams like PSG uh, and ended up dominating them and winning the game. He's played a diamond formation against sides and it's backfired, but he's tried to change things up in order to kind of go horses for courses. And I think maybe sometimes with Wolves, um, you just know exactly what they're going to do. They they couldn't quite get the balls mm. in the right areas uh, yesterday. I think obviously missing Jimenez is a, is a really big thing for them, not just physically with him not being on the pitch, but also mentally perhaps him not being there as a figure, um, knowing who's going to score their goals. Traore's dropped off this season and you know, you've know you got Fabio Silva coming on for the last half an hour of the game who's 18 and costs 30-odd million quid and you just think, is this guy really going to fire us back into this game? Obviously, it didn't turn out that way and Liverpool ended up scoring another couple of goals but I can't really put my finger on what it is. Maybe it is just a change of system or a change of formation or just something um, to, to kind of freshen things up. It, it could even be a new signing in January. Who knows? Um, it's tough to put your finger on it. I mean, the better team won last night. Liverpool were by far the better side. Wolves looked like they could have got something 
out of the game on the counter attack, but they they couldn't make it count when mm. when it really needed to. Um, and, and Liverpool were incisive and clinical, and that's what's made them so dominant over the last couple of seasons. We've said for for years that Wolves are probably better than the sum of their parts, that they perform above maybe what's expected. I wonder whether it's just kind of a little bit of equalisation that those players that have been playing out of their skin for the past three seasons, Connor Cody and Traore and Jimenez up until his injury, have just maybe had that little dip in form at the same time rather than being playing above their expected level. But by no means is there a disaster waiting to happen at Wolves. As you say, their league position is decent, even if the, re- the performances haven't quite been at the level that we've expected in past seasons. I mean, last night, Marley, Wolves will have felt slightly aggrieved by the penalty that was awarded for them and then taken away by VAR, which is something we don't see very often. But ultimately, was that the right call? Uh, yeah, I think so. Um, from from first glance, you were, you were thinking that's definitely a penalty. Um, with Mane putting his boot high and um, and Cody going in with his head, but you know that's that's what VAR's for. It's uh, the replay showed that Mane pulled away. Um, Cody pulled out because he thought he was going to get kicked. I don't think there's any um, any hint of you know he, he faked it or he dived or anything like it's that. It's not a dive, is it? No, especially when Jimenez got kicked in. Well, head butted in the head last week, and what's happened mm. to him? You're definitely going to pull out of a. a you know, a, a challenge like that. Um, yeah, Mark so. Clattenberg as well on Amazon Prime saying that he thought it was a yellow for Cody for diving. No. What is he talking about? I know he's managed uh, refereed the Champions League final, but that was a joke. You can clearly see in the replay that Cody is expecting to get a boot to the chops or to the nether regions mm. or something. He's expecting to get kicked by Mane. And so I think that's why he goes down. He doesn't dive. He slides on his knees and gets straight back up. Yeah, he just—it's like he pulls out, and he's—I think he's in midair when he when he does it. So when you when you pull out, it affects your balance, and he and he goes over. He doesn't appeal for it or anything. Um, he, you know, there's not not a a case of players running to the referee and saying, you know, that's a penalty and that kind of thing. But it was good to see the referee, you know, have a look at the decision and and use VAR in the, in the proper way and and uh, take that decision back but you know that's that's what it's there for and it's nice to actually see it used in a proper way it was another strong performance from Wijnaldum last night who contributed with a goal and to all intensive purposes looks like he is going to be leaving Liverpool in the summer are you surprised they've not put more effort into potentially keeping at the club now it's weird this one because I think they have and I think they've allegedly tabled a pretty good deal for Gidi Wijnaldum to stay at Anfield. I think the temptation for Wijnaldum is the bright lights of Barcelona. Um, Mm. And, you know, we've seen Liverpool and Barcelona trade players over the last couple of seasons. You think Coutinho was the big one that left Anfield to to join Barcelona and then it didn't really work out for him there at the camp now and he ended up at Bayern Munich and, you know, no one really knows what's going on with him now. So certainly the attraction for Wijnaldum is Barcelona are interested in him. Uh, reports that Real Madrid are too. Uh, I'm not sure about how serious Real Madrid are in signing Wijnaldum, but certainly Barcelona have the opportunity because he's out of contract in the summer to start talking to him from this January and offer him a, a deal. And I think that deal from Liverpool is still going to be on the table. And I think it's up to Barcelona to match that or improve that to tempt Wijnaldum away. I think the big temptation for Wijnaldum is that Ronald Koeman is the manager of Barcelona at the moment. Of course, Koeman, the former Everton 
and Southampton manager and of course uh, the manager of the Netherlands until recently so uh, Koeman and Wijnaldum seem to have a strong relationship a strong working relationship as player and coach and Wijnaldum I think has improved loads I mean he was a good player at Newcastle but for some reason when he went to Liverpool um, he's become a totally different beast the goal he scored last night was absolutely brilliant you just even though you could telegraph it the goalkeeper had no chance with that I mean just the way he kind of started it outside the post and just curled it into the top bins brilliant finish and you know that's the sort of player that he's turned into you think of those two headers in the Champions League against Barcelona uh, those two goals rather that set them on their way for that 4-0 victory which is incredible um it really really was an incredible victory for them on the way to winning that Champions League when they when they won at Anfield and you know Barcelona's a different challenge for him he's won the Champions League at Liverpool he's won the Premier League at Liverpool I mean is there really much more he could have done at Anfield in his time there apart from stay there and do it again and do it again and do it again but maybe he just wants a bit of a change of scenery challenge himself in a different league possibly play with Messi if Messi stays there we don't know he could be off to City he could be off anywhere in the summer so we're not even sure about that but there's a chance there to play with one of the best players that's ever laced up a pair of football boots so Lots of temptations there, I think, for Wijnaldum. And I think that's probably the reason why he's biding his time as to putting pen to paper on a new Liverpool contract. I personally think he will leave. I think if he was going to sign a new deal, he would have done so by now. But allegedly, the deal on the table for Liverpool is tempting. But I think Barcelona, we've seen their wage structure. We know what they're prepared to pay their players. I don't think it matters because for some reason they can afford to pay players the most money of any team in Europe and still not really suffer any problems with FFP or financially or anything like that. At least that's the way it seems from the outside. I don't want to, you know, throw any false accusations around, but certainly some of the wages that players are on at Barcelona would tempt any player, uh, no matter what the level. So, yeah, I think Wijnaldum's probably going to be off, but he couldn't have done any more. He is going to be missed when he leaves. And, you know, I, I think that Liverpool will have an eye on who possibly to replace him. And you look at the likes of Curtis Jones, who started six out of the last eight Premier League games, started again last night against Wolverhampton Wanderers. Handmade player from the academy probably saves Liverpool a little bit in the pocket as well in terms of wages. They don't have to fork out a transfer fee. I'm not saying he's the natural heir to Genie Vinaldum because Vinaldum's moulded himself into a very good player, but Liverpool do have options. They might not even have to dip into the transfer market after all. Right, I'm going to need one of you two to explain something to me now because I've seen a fair few people comparing Mo Salah to Cristiano Ronaldo over the last 24 hours after Salah apparently broke Ronaldo's record which was a record I don't think even Ronaldo knew he had, which was the fact that Ronaldo scored 84 goals in 196 games. Mo Salah against Wolves has now scored 84 goals in 131 games. So I think the suggestion is that Mo Salah is better than Ronaldo because he scored the same total of goals in 64 less games. So... Marley, is Salah better than Ronaldo or is it the fact that they're just completely different players that play in completely different positions? Well, it's, uh, it's you know, when you come to the Premier League, you, you dream of scoring specifically 84 goals, don't you? <laughs> yeah, it's the one, it's the one yeah, you it's aim at, even, isn't it? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's what you measured by. 100. Celebrate my record a few years ago as well of zero Premier League goals in zero <laughs> Premier League games. It's like 50 or 100 and it's like, no, 84 is the one you want to get to because that's what Ronaldo got to in another bizarre amount of games. Um, but as as for the comparison, I, I don't. I see it because they're both wingers and blah blah blah, and you know they both score goals and what have you. But they're completely different because I think when Ronaldo was in the in the Premier League, he, he what a couple of years he needed um, where he was basically a rookie. Um, he was only in his third mm. professional season, I think, when he joined Man United. 
Um, not much was ever expected of this teenager, this skinny little teenager from from Portugal. Um, in terms of sort of, he was know, eighteen, wasn't he, when he signed Ronaldo? Yeah, exactly, and that that's the biggest thing for me. I think Salah was was pretty much a, a finished article when he came to uh, when he came to Liverpool, even though he he'd not set the world alight at Rome. He'd still do he still done pretty well, and you would you would say that you might have one one or two more gears in in him kind of thing but with Ronaldo he always had another five or six gears to go into um, and to to really sort of flourish as a player um, so I think we're judging Salah in his prime years against Ronaldo in his formative years so I don't think it's a fair uh, comparison but I mean as we know with the, with Liverpool fans they will take any shot they can get at Man United um, and this is this is another one which they can uh, back up with with some sort of slightly flawed stats um, <laughs> to prove it and to prove that they've got the best winger that's ever set foot on the planet. But you know, um, I don't I don't see it for me. I think there's a very obvious asterisk that hangs over that stat for me, and and that's that Ronaldo was yeah. was not the Ronaldo that was at Real Madrid. Um, even though he won yeah. the Ballon d'Or before he left, that was in that was that one season. So. I think that was the one season he scored 30 or 40 goals or something like that in, in all competitions. Mm. So if you're judging both players in their prime, you probably had one season of Ronaldo close to his prime in the Premier League and he scored a hell of a load of goals. So if you if you took that average rate and, and spread it over three and a half years of, or whatever Salah's been in the Premier League for, you know, you're know you probably looking at getting to that magical 84-goal mark in probably about 60 games if you're Ronaldo. So it's mm. uh, there is a big asterisk over this for me. I was actually at Old Trafford in 2003 when Ronaldo scored his first goal for United and he came on with these crooked teeth and his blonde-tipped hair looking like, who's this kid, you know, with his white socks rolled up halfway up his shin pads. And you think, who the hell's this guy? He came on and scored a free kick against Portsmouth and they, and they beat us 3-0 at Old Trafford. That was in 2003. He was 18. He didn't break 10 goals in a season until 2006-07 where he scored 17 and then the year after, which Marley mentions, 2007-8, where he scored 31 Premier League goals that season. And albeit he wasn't really a forward still at that point, well, he was. He was a wide forward rather than someone who played through the middle like he did at Real Madrid. So I think that that is key. I mean, to give Salah a bit of credit, I think we have a strong argument to say that Mo Salah could be the greatest African player to ever play in the Premier League. I think we're getting close to that. If you look at his record now, I know he's only been in the league, um, well, first of all, obviously he started in 2013 with Chelsea, but since he's been at Liverpool in 2017, 32 Premier League goals, 22 Premier League goals, 19 Premier League goals, and now nine already this season in 10 appearances. So I think he is really knocking on the door of being on that top table of best Africans to ever lace boots in the Premier League. And, you know, I know he's only been at Liverpool for four seasons and there'll be people kind of screaming at the podcast as they listen to this saying, what's he talking about? How can Salah be one of the best Africans to play in the Premier League? I think it's only fair to suggest that he's definitely in with a shout. If you look at the numbers that he's posting on a regular basis, they're phenomenal numbers. But for me, the argument boils down to the exact same thing that Marley said. It took Ronaldo from when he was 18 to when he was sort of early 20s to really hit the afterburners and hit his stride and, and start finding the back of the net on a regular basis. When Liverpool signed Salah from Roma, no one expected him to hit the ground running the way he did. 32 goals in his first season. Absolutely brilliant. And he's managed to keep it up uh, to an extent for the whole time he's been in the Premier League with Liverpool. So... I think it's different when you sign someone who's in their mid-twenties and already experienced top-level football like at Chelsea and like at Roma uh, to someone who you signed from Sporting Lisbon when they were 18. So 
two different players, two different styles, um, but two absolute top quality talents. I mean, for me, Ronaldo's better just because of what he's achieved after he's been on, uh, been in the Premier League and what he's achieved since then with the Ballon d'Ors and whatnot. Um, but in terms of purely Premier League form, if you're comparing the two, I, I don't think it's it's too separate from the two of them, if that makes sense. I think it's pretty close between the two of them uh, as between who's been better in the Premier League. Undoubtedly a superb player. It's just a very, very strange comparison. Let's see who's next to get the magic 84 goals that everyone wants. Uh, finally, just to wrap up this little section of the podcast, it's a three-way title race for me at the moment. I know fans of other teams would probably argue they're still in the race, but if you look at Spurs, Liverpool, Chelsea, they're the ones that seem to be leading the line in terms of a Premier League challenge. Who's in the driving seat at the moment? Who out of those three do you back to potentially go on and win this thing, Marley? Well, as, as of right now, the team in the driving seat is Spurs um, because they're, I think, they are still top of the league, aren't they? Um, well, let's not get this wrong. We're not up last get time. This I'm not making any comment whatsoever. So Tottenham are top of the league, yeah. 24 points, but they've sure? got a goal difference of 14. <laughs> Liverpool, 24 points as well, goal difference of nine. Chelsea, 22. Then Leicester City, 21. Manchester United, 19, etc., etc. Yeah. So yes, currently <laughs> Spurs are top of the league on goal difference. Well, there you go. So, I mean, in the driving seat right now is, is Spurs. Um, but obviously, if you're looking at who's the most likely to win it, you're probably looking at uh, Liverpool's uh, experience. Um you can probably always say as well that Liverpool have got players to come back and they've got experience of of managing, you know, Champions League and and um, and Premier League sort of schedules with with playing twice in the week. Spurs play on a Thursday, which gives them less um, less time to recover sometimes, um, especially when they get to the if they get to say the quarterfinals and and draw someone who's fell out of the Champions League, they're gonna play a stronger team in the Europa League, and that might affect them in the league the the following Sunday. Um, but as of right now, I think you know Spurs are Spurs are top, so it's theirs to it's theirs to uh, to kind of to blow or to to do a Spurs as they have done in in recent years. But um, in terms of who's most likely, I would say probably uh, probably Liverpool. Still, I still think they they still look a a top side, even though when you you take out the the defenders and the the players that they've lost, um, and even the goalkeeper, I think you know they they attack so well that they're always going to cause cause problems for teams and you know it's a case of if they concede two you wouldn't back against them scoring five mm. um so it's it's one of them where i think they've got a they've got to have a, a dip for them not to be um the favorites but as of right now i think you know spurs are spurs are top of the league so they're they're the ones to knock off that perch for me, I think Liverpool, you have to be a little bit foolish to look past them winning back-to-back Premier League titles. But I still think Chelsea, as I've said all season, are in with a great shout. They are, for me, the team that is improving week or week at, week on week at the moment. So I wouldn't rule them out yet. Who would you say, Niall? Who's your favourite for the title at the moment? It's tough. I mean, if you're talking about who's... It's so close. Yeah, it, it really is. And that's what's making this such an exciting season. And we're not even talking about Manchester City in the picture at the moment. If we're mm. talking about those three teams, Spurs, Liverpool and Chelsea, who's in the driving seat? Marley's right. Tottenham are top. So surely they are in the box seat. But I think Liverpool, for their experience of winning the league last season, their experience of being top of the table pretty much every week for the last two years... Um, I can't look past them, as you say, Jim. I think just the experience that some of their players have got, the hunger, the desire. Um, everyone will say about this Liverpool team, 
that it's all right if you win it once. They can only be a great team if they win it two or three times on the bounce. That's certainly been the narrative from a lot of the former Manchester United players turned pundits. Mm. Um, I think that's a fair enough comparison because to win the league two or three times in a row against stiff competition is what makes a great team. And I think Liverpool are a great team and I think that they they are determined to prove that. Uh, And I think that for me, they are the side still to beat Chelsea again they've got experience of winning the Premier League Tottenham don't but Chelsea's players now haven't won the Premier League as a group of players ever I mean you look at the the players that are in the squad from the side that Chelsea last won the Premier League with let's just say the players that were under Antonio Conte when Chelsea last won the Premier League how many of those players are still there I mean Courtois not in goal anymore Um, the only one really I can think of is N'Golo Conte and the rest of them, I can't really think. I mean, Willian's gone, Pedro's gone. So if you're talking about the players that were there, Diego Costa's gone. You're talking about the players that were there when Chelsea last won it a few years ago and the players that are there now. It's like a totally different squad and a totally different side. So Chelsea probably don't have the experience. The club has got the mentality, but do those players. Certainly one thing you can't deny is that Liverpool, Liverpool's players do have the mentality to go on and win it again. And, and for me, I, I, just, I just can't see how they won't be in with a shout come the end of the season. Only a quarter of the way through, still plenty of time to go. And as you point out, Niall, Manchester City not even being talked about at the moment, but a couple of wins and they're right back in the mix. We're going to turn our attention to mid-table next because tonight Brighton face Southampton. We'll preview that game next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. There is Premier League action tonight. It is the South Coast derby that Niall refuses to acknowledge as a South Coast derby. Stop. It is Brighton, <laughs> Brighton versus Southampton. Two teams that you would have put on a similar level maybe last season. But this season, I think it's fair to say that Southampton are... Now, I'm going to ask this question to Marley because I know Nile won't like it. Southampton are overachieving this season, Marley. Uh, yeah, I think that's that's fair enough to say. I think, uh, you know, a win tonight will take them um, fifth. So I think, you know, at, at the minute, I mean, they're eighth. They'd probably say that that's where they'd love to be at the end of the season. Maybe, you know, they'd take a top 10 finish. Um, but to be fifth after after 11 games after tonight, if, if they beat Brighton, then that is... A hell of a um, a start to the season, especially without Danny Ings for the last two or three weeks. Um, I think Hasenhutl's doing obviously a great job, as we've talked about a lot on the podcast in in recent weeks. But they um, they they they're starting to get the fruits of of what they've um, of what he's started to to sow there, um, and we're we're starting we're now starting to see a, a team that is a bit more respected in in terms of when you go and play them, you know what they're gonna. You know what they're going to do. You know you're in for a tough game. You know you've got to be clever with uh, possession. You've got to get your, your tactics right to uh, to avoid that that um, pressing game that that they play so well. Um, and if you can you can survive that, and you can not give away free kicks in stupid areas where which James Ward Prowse is is going to hurt you from, then you're in a you're in a position to beat them. But it's a lot of things you've got to do to stop them playing um, and to stop them having that success that they've had in in the past nine or ten weeks because. They've been excellent at the start of the season, and it should be it should be a good game tonight in terms of watching it. I think both teams play the proper way. They, they like to dominate possession and pass it round on the floor, kind of thing. There's not any hoofing it up towards a, a target man or something like that. So it should be it should be a decent game. But I mean, it, it's absolutely not a derby, is it? Let's be honest. I'm fully in that boat on that one. It's not a 
it's it, it's Good technically a, 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 a geographical derby, but there they shouldn't be a bloody rivalry <laughs> there at all. I'm not having that. A West Ham rivals with MK Dons. Uh, as much as we are with anyone else, I think probably yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, there we go then. That, that's your answer. <laughs> yeah, by by the judgment that everyone hates West Ham and West Ham hit everybody else, then absolutely. <laughs> I heard you googling there now uh, to yeah. check how far away. Uh, how far away MK Dons I'm guessing was. it's 50 miles. Um, I'm guessing it's 50 miles. Probably not far off, maybe a little bit further. But, I mean, we talked before the season started quite a lot about Southampton, how they'd be in trouble if Danny Ings got injured. And here we are, 10 games in, Danny Ings has been injured for five. They've done really well without him. You've got to give them credit there, Southampton, now for coping without a player that was deemed their star player pre-season. Yeah, definitely. And I think that the key will be if they can keep that up when Danny Ings does come back. Because as soon as he comes back, all the focus will be back on him to mm. say, right, OK, we got Ings back. Now we can just sit back and relax and let him take charge of scoring all the goals. And sometimes it doesn't work like that, especially when players come back from long term injuries where it's difficult for them to get back used to the pace of the game again. Um, and, you know, sometimes players have a tendency to try too hard to try and carry on where they left off and I'm not saying that's going to happen with Danny Ings but there's a chance that Southampton you know could end up that way and they need to be wary that that doesn't happen Uh, I think overachieving is a good way to describe it I think you know if I'm being rational and fair here then yeah they are overachieving but they've deserved to be where they are they've deserved to be an eighth they've put in good performances they've managed to do the job without Danny Ings who's their key goal scorer everyone said they were going to crumble and I think that's good incentive for them actually to be fair Um, you know the more people that say well Southampton are nothing without Danny Ings what does that tell you about the other players I mean, what does that say to them? Mm. If that's the narrative coming from the press and the supporters of other clubs, Southampton are finished when Danny Ings aren't playing. I mean, surely that gives some of those other players a bit of motivation to go on and prove the doubt is wrong, so to speak. So, yeah, I think they'll be excited when he's back. Um, but certainly, uh, I don't think that we'll see them finish any higher than they, than they are. I mean, a bit like West Ham. I don't know how you feel about this. West Ham have played well. Southampton have played well this season, but it still feels that fifth is a little bit flattering mm. to deceive. I think they'll probably beat Brighton tonight, to be honest. Um, We've said about Brighton's problems um, with chances created. Um, I think if Brighton could finish their chances, they'd be in a similar position to Southampton. I really do. And let's not forget that they've played some big six sides already and we're only in the opening two or three months of the season now, um, October, uh, November, December. And, you know, they've already played a fair chunk of the top six Brighton. But the problem is that they've got is against the non-top six sides, the sides that they'd be expecting to pick up points from, they've not been doing so. And it's all well and good performing well and playing well and and looking like you're a good side. But if you can't score goals, you're not going to win any football match. It's the biggest cliche in football. You can't win a game without scoring goals. And this is the same argument about Tottenham. Yesterday, I heard Jamie Redknapp on the TV saying that Tottenham are an ugly watch under Jose Mourinho. There's nothing ugly about scoring goals. There was nothing ugly about Son's goal yesterday um, and Kane's goal against Arsenal yesterday. But, I mean, if that's the case... The whole point of beautiful football is scoring goals. Mm. You know, you can pass the ball around as much as you want. If you can't find the net, then you're in trouble. And I think that that's what Brighton's issue is. So they need to really take their chances tonight against Southampton. Because if they don't, I feel that they'll get beaten again. That's going to be a real problem because Neil Mopé is out tonight. So that's going to cause some problems, Marley. I mean, they were struggling to score goals before. It's really difficult to see how they're going to score goals without their main man playing. Yeah, um, that's that's the the age-old problem, isn't it, for Brighton? I think even when Morpé is playing, could you ever, could you ever sort of be confident enough? Would you ever put a bet on Neil Morpé scoring in a game and and be confident it's gonna return you something? Because mm. he he tends to score sort of 
intermittently. He kind of, you know, sometimes he'll he'll get a couple in a game and then he'll go quiet for three or four games. And I don't think he's really got the consistency to be um, the, a guy who gets you 15 or, or more a season. If you look at Danny Ings scoring 21 or 22 last season in a in a team in Southampton who didn't finish, um, you know, particularly high and were in a little bit of trouble for most of the season. That's the, it's not beyond um, reason that you can that you can expect one of your strikers down in those parts of the league to score you a lot of goals. I mean, look at Bamford at Leeds; he's, he's banged in seven or eight so far this season. Um, so Brighton need to sort that out. Um, I don't know how they're going to do that. I mean, obviously you would look at a, a signing, um, but you know you've got to go and take a gamble on someone else and see if they can do it because I mean Welbeck you know Welbeck's only 10 minutes away from getting an injury at any point in his career um even though he's, he's he played last week I think he, he scored in his last game um he's he's going to do a hamstring as soon as he plays um so he's going to be out soon Morpay's gone um for tonight and then you know you're back to square one because I think Brighton play enough and they create enough chances to score goals they just need someone to finish them off regularly um, and I think that, that'll that that'll uh, come unstuck that's what'll make them come unstuck against uh, Southampton tonight I think Yeah according to the Premier League stats as well Jim just quickly Brighton have created more chances than West Ham Leicester Arsenal and Wolves this season and also more big chances than Southampton so I think we are probably accurate in saying that if Brighton can find someone to finish for them they might be alright Brighton haven't beaten Southampton in the Premier League since their return to the Premier League yet. You've already nailed your colours to the mast, Niall. You're saying a Southampton win. Marley, can you see it going any other way? Um, I can. Do you know what? I can see, with the way they play, I can see you know a 2-2 draw or something like that. But I just think with, with everything as it is, you know, Brighton without more pay... Um, relying on Danny Welbeck to lead the line on his own probably. I just think Southampton have got more about them. They're in a, a rich vein of form anyway. Um I think Southampton will, will get it done tonight. Before we move on to talking about Arsenal with Josh from a bird camp Wonderland in Floodlight Focus, I just want to bring a couple of transfer rumours to the table because the transfer window does open in under four weeks now, which seems crazy because it, feels, it seems like it's only just closed and we're only, what, 10, 11 games into the season. But that's how it stands, and there's a couple of interesting rumours doing the rounds. 90 Minutes are reporting that Juventus forward Pablo Dobia has been offered to the Premier League's... What's, going on? What's wrong with the pronunciation of that one? <laughs> that's, a, that's a different player. Dybala. Dybala. What did I say? Dobia. <laughs> Dybala. Pablo Dybala has been offered to six of the Premier League's big teams. United, Liverpool, Chelsea, Tottenham, City and Arsenal. So clearly Juventus want rid of him. But can you see him being... Getting that move to a big Premier League team, Marley. Uh, it seems like it seems inevitable, doesn't it? Because they've sort of been linked with letting him go um, for the last couple of transfer windows. Now, I think there was there was a rumor about him going to Man United a couple of uh, years ago. Um, well, not that long ago. I think it was about a year ago now. Um, where he he basically said, "I don't want to play for Man United. I want to stay and fight for my place at Juventus." Um, but he's a great player. It's, he's not exactly suited to the English game. In in if you look at the uh, the sort of uh, what's the word sort of 
tendencies you tend to expect from people. He's a bit sort of lightweight and he's very tricky. But, I mean, James Rodriguez is doing all right at, at Everton. I think he's kind of a similar type of player in terms of he's got great technique and not very much um, defensive uh, awareness or or physicality. But he's, he is a difference maker. You could get him... Um, you could get him in and and expect chances to come from him. So, if Arsenal have that, um, if have that um, financial ability to pull that move off, and they can attract him, even on a loan spell or something like that, he could be a good player for for anyone really. But especially for for a team that's struggling to create chances, I think he's uh, he's someone that can do that, and he can chip in with a lot of goals as well if you play him as a as a striker. So. I think um, it'd be nice to see him come to the Premier League, especially because he's not—he's not old. He's—he's he's, he's sort of in his prime years. If uh, twenty-seven, yeah, I mean twenty-seven. I mean, you can get what three or four years out of him at, at his peak if if you time this right. So, um, it's always paper talk though with with the Barlow so far in his career. He's not moved very often. I think he's been at Juventus for five or six years um, after coming from Palermo. Um, but he's um, he's one of them where if you sign him and he and he gets it right, he, he'll be a bargain, whatever his price is. Manchester United transfer news as well from the Telegraph, who say the club are monitoring Atletico Madrid's English defender Kieran Trippier. Is it? Is that you? <laughs> Kieran Trippier. Um, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer apparently wants a right back for as competition for Aaron Wan-Bissaka. It's an interesting one, that, Niall, because Trippier seemed very much out of the picture and in terms of his kind of status in the game when he went off to Atletico Madrid. But he's done well in Spain and he's rebuilt that reputation. Yeah, and I think it was a, a brave move from him because at the time, Tottenham just achieved something big. They got to the Champions League final, if, if I do believe rightly, that was the summer that he left. And, you know, he had done good things in the World Cup the year before that as well. So... Yeah, definitely a, a big, brave move for him to to take in a new culture and move to an, a, a new country and perform in one of the most, um, you know, well-respected teams, I think, across Europe, not just from the fact that the way they play and everyone knows what Simeone's style of management is like, but, you know, to go and take in a different culture and a different style of play to what we've seen at Tottenham was uh, was a brave move for him and, and Atletico, you know, for a club of, of that stature to come call in. And I know they're not Real Madrid or Barcelona, but certainly they're a well-thought-of club in Spain and a well-thought-of club in Europe, at least from a neutral perspective. So definitely think that that was brave for him to do that. And, and you know, say resurrect his career or whatever, I don't think his career ever really waned that badly. Um, I do think his defining moment was um, scoring that free kick in the semi-final of the World Cup. Uh, everyone will remember that, even though England ended up going on to lose the game. So I think he was 30 now or over the other side of 30. So, you know, it was, it was the right time for him to move on and try a new challenge. I think that that's a difficult thing to do when you're sort of in your mid-30s, let's just say, uh, travelling abroad to try and break into a first team of a side like Atletico. So... What's interesting for me here is, regardless of whether Manchester United are interested in uh, signing Trippier or not, um, Aaron Wan-Bissaka, I think, has been really, really good this season. I think he's been one of Manchester United's better players this campaign so far. And although he's not the attacking fullback that perhaps Manchester United fans want, defensively... I was going to say, isn't Trippier a more Manchester United yeah, player? Yeah, for sure. Like, you, know, you know what I mean when I for say sure, that? For sure, but I mean, if, you, if you're talking about Manchester United's style, Gary Neville wasn't the most attacking fullback in the world. You know, and Wes mm. Brown wasn't the most attacking when he played left back on the other side, and John O'Shea sometimes played left back as well. And you know, they were kind of more geared towards being defensively sound and let the wingers do the work. You think Neville had Ronaldo and Beckham in front of him? You know, if you talk about players to put balls into the box, it would be those two, wouldn't it? So, 
I think that the game has changed slightly and Wan-Bissaka, we have seen him slightly improve on that element of going forward, but defensively he's sound and I think we might even see Solskjaer try and convert Wan-Bissaka into a centre-half in terms of playing in a back three, uh, maybe playing on the right side of a back three and having someone on the overlap. They've already got Alex Tellez on the left who they've signed in the summer who can put balls into the box and we've seen him do that to great effect already in his short Manchester United career. So, you can see the avenue that Solskjaer and Manchester United are trying to go down with their with their fullbacks. Um, and it does sort of feel a little bit unbalanced, let's just say. If you've got Tellez bombing down the left and whipping devilish balls into the box, and you've got Wan-Bissaka on the right who isn't quite doing the same thing. And I'm sure Wan-Bissaka's got the ability to do that. After all, I think he used to be a winger when he was at Crystal Palace before he kind of got converted into a defender. But defensively, he's one of the best tacklers I've seen of the ball in the Premier League in years. And, you know, maybe it is all about coaching a bit more of attacking intent into Wambasaka. Either that or you do sign someone like Trippier. But, you know, if you're talking about Manchester United signing for the future, Wambasaka was a signing for the future from Crystal Palace. Kieran Trippier, as we say, is 30. He's got the experience. But how long is he going to last in that position? So who knows? Um, it's an interesting one. And if you're talking about competition for Wambasaka at right back, um, it's intriguing whether it just might be whether they need another option um, for someone slightly more attacking. Who knows? Plenty more transfer gossip to come over the coming weeks. Like I say, 20 odd days until the transfer window opens again. One of the clubs that might be looking for some extra firepower, particularly are Arsenal. They're having a torrid time to the beginning of their season. And we're going to be talking next about Arsenal as we catch up with Josh from a Bergkamp Wonderland in today's Floodlight Focus. Football Social Daily. Find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk. To hear the latest Premier League news for your team, just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. I love the term crisis club and I think there's always at least one Premier League team you can term as a crisis club at any given time. At the moment, that team is 100% Arsenal and they are the topic of today's floodlight focus. And to talk more about that, I've got Josh from a Bergkamp Wonderland on the podcast. How you doing, Josh? Uh, yeah, I'm doing okay, all things considered, from the weekend. <laughs> um, yeah, as I, as I said just before the, the uh, podcast, before I came on, that I we did a podcast last night, so I've managed to vent already. So hopefully I'll be a bit more rational today. You're feeling a little bit calmer about things. Okay, well, I mean, there's so much to go at where, as Arsenal are concerned at the moment. But my first question is, what's going on with Aubameyang? It's a wonderful question, isn't it? It's the um, brand new contracts kind of vibes with the Meza Ozil situation, another situation that we could spend far longer than any duration of a podcast could realistically be on uh, his his point in the team. Mm. But on Aubameyang, I get incredibly frustrated with him, it, mainly for his demeanour. Uh, I know it's a, a terrible thing to say, from a football fan who should look at you know the statistics that we're not creating enough chances and but as soon as we gave Aubameyang the captain's armband there was that heightened responsibility and we're not seeing from a fan's point of view a captain trying to rally the troops get the team you know playing a little more we're seeing a more dejected figure which when you are I think I saw the stat of we are 92nd 
in the entire EFL pyramid for creating chances this season. Wow. That's going to put, you know, it's going to frustrate any striker in any system. Mm. And, you know, when you've got such a world-class talent like Aubameyang, it is frustrating that we're not supplying him the ammunition he needs to go and get the goals. Even with the lack of chances being created, though, does it feel like he should be contributing more? Because I didn't think you were bad at the weekend in terms of creating those opportunities, but he just seems like a striker that's desperately short of confidence at the moment. He does. Uh, one of my biggest frustrations, uh, I wouldn't say I'm the biggest Aubameyang fan in general. Obviously, love him at the club. think he's a superb striker and on his day, one of the best in the league. Uh, but one of the things that frustrates me is the movement he makes isn't always necessarily the best. I know our midfield isn't the strongest, but the forwards have got to at least help them out a little bit. There are moments in the game we saw at Spurs where Jack is on the ball and there isn't an option for him. And mm. we all know that if you press Xhaka, chances are he's going to turn the ball over. So we need we need to get around these kind of players. And if Aubameyang's got to come short a little bit to just link up the play, we're not seeing that. And I don't think that's in his game either to be that kind of player. Uh, what also doesn't help is I think he's being um, doubled up on um, because the rest of our squad isn't strong enough to work around that is where we're seeing this issue where we just can't seem to score goals at all in the league. Josh, you know all these, you know, we we talked about Xhaka there and he had no options in the middle of the pitch and I'm sure you've probably seen match of the day last night when, when um, they, they highlighted no one coming short to get the ball. Um, that position of coming short and getting the ball just behind, sort of in between the midfield and defence of, of Tottenham in this case, is is that not something that would... I mean, if you put Mesut Ozil on that pitch, he would be exactly where that ball should have went or someone should have been. Would, would Like, is that right? I th- it looks like it. That was a, t- a typical number 10 position. Yeah. When you've got no creativity in your team, it has to go wider, it has to go to the centre-forward who's got two centre-backs on him. Absolutely, and I think what Arteta's doing with his system is very similar to the Pep one, where you've got Hector Bellerin, for example, is playing very inside. He's almost a central midfielder. I think uh, they highlighted that potentially he was out of position for a couple of the goals, but what he's doing in this team is kind of sitting between the lines and progressing the ball. And we've also got players like Willian, you know, who in their right, own right are a creative player. You know, this isn't just a, a personnel issue that just because we haven't got Meza Ozil in the squad, we can't create anything. I think it's a wider systemic issue with the way that Arteta's gone about things and the system he's trying to play doesn't necessarily suit the players we've got. Josh, I wanted to ask you about um, the fact that you're obviously from the, the podcast of Burkamp Wonderland and Dennis Burkamp yes. was a player who was so intelligent on the ball. Do you think that Arsenal at the moment are missing some players with that level of football intelligence. I know it's tough to reach the level that Burkamp reached, but an example, for for instance, from yesterday's game would be Thomas Partey, who was feeling a little bit of an injury and decided to leave the pitch. And then Tottenham went and scored a second goal. I mean, if you're talking about players mentally that are up for the fight, I mean, you wouldn't have picked Thomas Partey as someone who would kind of 
leave the field randomly. So what do you make of that whole situation? And do you think there's enough there but sort of between the ears from these Arsenal players to really stick it to the Premier League this season? Yeah, it is certainly surprising that a man who came through the school of Simeone didn't think to have, you know, kind of a um, <laughs> uh, that kind of in-game management that, yes, there is the argument that the referee doesn't have to stop the play and would our greatest rivals in Spurs put the ball out for Thomas Partey, who's gone down in midfield when there's a chance to get score a goal? <laughs> Probably not. In front of a home crowd. Yeah, exactly. Well. But it, you'd at least want to see him try because it's better than what he did uh, in reality, that him kind of trotting off the field and seeing Mikel Arteta having to physically push him back on the field and say, no, look, they're breaking. Do something. Uh is incredibly frustrating. I think we've got an issue where we've got an incredibly raw manager. While everybody mm. sings Arteta's praises, he is very much still learning on the job. And we, the other mm. problem is we've got a lot of raw players as well. Nicolas Pepe, uh, you look at like the youngsters that have come through the Hale End Academy in Reese Nelson, Joe Willock, they need a lot mm. of work as well. So I think that's where we're seeing Arteta kind of rely on uh, experience at the moment. Uh, a lot of us can't fathom how Willian gets in the team week in, week out. But I think it's that consistency that he wants while he tries to learn and help himself out. But it is very frustrating that we all know that 60 to 80% of this squad isn't good enough for what Arteta wants to do with it. But Arteta should be doing better with that 60 to 80% of the squad because you can't get away with just pushing away, you know, saying, oh, eight players out of my 11 can't play this system, but I'm still going to play the system. But isn't that kind of what you buy into when you buy... I mean, we don't know a massive amount of about Mikel Arteta as a manager, but we assume he's kind of mini Pep Guardiola mm. and because he was his tutor, essentially. And what you get with Pep Guardiola is you get an incredibly stubborn man who has a philosophy and refused to bend from that philosophy. So to expect Arteta to go into a football club and play a style of football that he doesn't want to play, but that suits the players he's got, is maybe a little bit foolish, which leads me to think that the board at Arsenal maybe have got a long-term vision there and aren't going to do anything rash at this stage because they need to back Arteta. And I heard someone comparing Mikel Arteta to Ole Gunnar Solskjaer recently. And for me, the fundamental difference there, apart from ability, is the fact that Solskjaer has been hugely backed by Manchester United, but Arteta hasn't had that opportunity yet. So is it a case of just being patient, putting up with the storm for the time being, giving Arteta the money to bring the players in he wants and then seeing what happens in maybe 24 months. Yeah, I think the players that we've seen come in and working under Arteta, the likes of Thomas Partey and Gabriel, who I think is, uh, well, rather biasly, probably one of the best centre-backs in the league at the moment in terms of current form because he's just come in and hit the ground running and been superb for us. I think if we give Arteta the money and one thing to also add on our board when the Cronkies took full uh, ownership of Arsenal just after we'd lost the Europa League final Josh Cronkie came out and is on record saying I looked in the eyes of all of the players that started that game and you could see that some of them weren't good enough so I think there is a understanding at the very top that this squad isn't good enough for what Arsenal should be and where we should be challenging in terms of 
pushing for a league title every season and consistently getting into the Champions League as well and getting beyond the round of uh, the last 16 as well. Is he safe for now? There's a growing displeasure amongst the Arsenal fans. We know what Arsenal fans are like in terms of getting on the backs of managers. Yeah. Do you think he's got a, uh, a little bit more leeway? I think it would be foolish to let him go now. Whilst we could get better short-term results, and I think a lot of football fans look at uh, you know short-term gratification. It's a very big movement now in uh, football fan bases, just generally, that we want instant success. Mm. I think we'd be worse off doing that uh, in the long term because of the issues we've got generally in the squad, which doesn't mean... Arteta can do what he wants. We think we still need to hold him to account. And it's one of the things that I think fans coming back into the Emirates for the Burnley game, that's going to be huge because that gives them, the players as well, the kind of litmus test of how, what do the fan base actually think of this? Because since Arteta's come in, the only voice they've really heard for eight months on how they're actually doing mm. is the manager. And how often can you say that in football, that the only voice you hear for an extended period of time is them? We'll have to wait and see. It's certainly never dull at the Emirates Stadium, so I'm quite enjoying seeing how it pans out over the next couple of months. Josh, if people want to find out more from the Bergkamp Wonderland podcast, they want to listen to a slightly more measured opinion from Arsenal fans that maybe uh, they have a they have a reputation You didn't hear him yesterday. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's true. Not listening to yesterday's. Uh, where can they find you, Josh? Uh, you can find us on Twitter at the AFC podcast and we now aggregate out to everybody. So you can find us on YouTube, Spotify, we're on Twitch as well. So we go live after almost every Arsenal game, probably about 15 minutes or so now after the final whistle goes, just because there's so many Arsenal podcasts now. We want to try and get in and uh, make sure people can get hold of us. Uh, and we do a podcast every week that is sometimes live uh, sometimes it's pre-recorded depending on the guests we've got but yeah you can find us just search a Burkamp Wonderland in however you get your podcasts and you will find us there you go go and check out Burkamp Wonderland Gunners and that is it for Football Social Daily you can find us in all those places as well apart from Twitch we're not that modern yet but you can search Football Social <laughs> Daily to find us there click subscribe so you never miss an episode that is it for today's show thank you Josh it's been an absolute pleasure and cheers, Marley and Niall. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Josh. And we'll see you next time on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at The Sports Social. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.